you've got a Bible, turn to me with, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Yeah, and if you've got some kiddos in the room who are third grade or under, Miss LaQuandra, Miss Jennifer in the back of the room, and they'll take them down the hall for their lesson this morning as we open the scriptures today for our sermon. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 9 together. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 9. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there. But beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. This is God's Word. Uh, The series of messages started off with us talking about reaching our neighbors, and then continued with us talking about raising disciples. Last week, we looked at launching leaders and launching an internship and residency program. This week, we come to this text in 2 Corinthians to talk about maturing stewards. Maturing stewards. Now, when you think about the process of maturation, you see maturation in all sorts of things, don't you? I asked the kids at Axis on Wednesday night what they thought maturation was or maturity looked like. I got all kinds of answers, and it was great. We had a great conversation. But maturation takes place in plants, and it takes place in people, right? It takes place in all sorts of things. When you plant a fruit tree, and you look at that fruit tree day after day, right? Over the course of time, some fruit-bearing trees take years to begin to set fruit, flower, and put on a harvest, okay? But if you look at that fruit tree day one when it's planted, and day 20 after it's planted, if it's still not bearing fruit, something has stalled out the maturation process in that plant right the same is true of a of a child at two years of age okay in the terrible twos right whenever they're melting down and screaming at the top of their lungs and they are coming unglued at the it's usually at the word in oh right whenever they're responding that way and they're still acting that way whenever they're 22 okay something has stalled out the maturation process in that person and the same is true of Christians. Right? When you look at someone who is converted to Christ, day one, if you look at them day 1001, right, and their, matur- their, their loves and their lives still look the same as they did on day one, day 1001 or 10,000, right? if they, they still look the same, right, then something has stalled out the maturation process in them. Something is off. 
Right? Because there is a maturity that takes place in plants, it takes place in people, and it takes place in Christians as they progressively are formed more and more to the image of Christ. And perhaps there is no other area, particularly in our affluent modern Western culture, in which the maturation process gets stalled out in the lives of Christians than in the area of money and possessions. In our particular culture. So that's maturation. Stewards, stewards, listen, are managers, they are not owners. That's the, that's the biblical term for, you hear that word stewardship, right? Oh, the old school churches would have stewardship emphasis months, right? Where they talked about what it looked like to manage those things that God had entrusted to our care. So if considering the biblical reality that God owns everything, then we're merely the managers. And so that, what that means is this, church, is that we're all either maturing in our management of what God has entrusted to us, or we've stalled out in our management of what God's entrusted to us. So we're either good managers or we're bad managers, but we're all managers. Okay, so we're all stewarding what God has entrusted to us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing the church in Corinth Listen, let me give you a little context for this passage. He's writing the church in Corinth to remind them of a commitment that they'd made previously to take a collection of funds to assist the church in Jerusalem who had fallen on hard times and become impoverished. Now the church in Jerusalem was experiencing this type of impoverished reality because of persecution. Persecution had begun to sweep through the church in Jerusalem, and as a result, many of them were disowned by their families and experienced social ostracism that resulted in the loss of their jobs as well. The two streams of wealth in the world, family and vocation, they had been cut off from, and so they found themselves to be in great need as a result of their faithfulness to Jesus. And so Paul is taking a collection from the churches in the Mediterranean region to help send relief, he says in the text, relief to the saints. To care for that church in Jerusalem that was going through this significant hardship or severe affliction. To relieve the economic pressure that they were experiencing. Now, Paul's also writing to the church in Corinth that had begun to question his authority as an apostle. Okay, because of some of the things that Paul had said, some of the things that Paul had done, because Paul was not like the celebrity preachers of his day that the Corinthians were infatuated with. Right? They liked the guys who were on YouTube getting clickbait all over the internet. All right? Those are the guys that the Corinthians were infatuated with, not Paul, the average, everyday, ordinary apostle who was faithful in his ministry week in and week out. Right? They wanted super apostles. They wanted celebrity preachers. And so they began to question Paul's authority. And so Paul's writing into that context to remind them of this collection right, that they had committed to, to a church that was really kind of on the outs with Paul in their relationship with him. But he's reminding them to be good stewards of the resources God had entrusted to them as a way to be a part of God's work in the world. That's what's going on in this text. So the question is, if we want to mature as stewards, what does this particular text contribute to our understanding of stewardship and how we mature in it? And there's several things I want us to see in this text this morning. And the first one is this, is that stewardship, or to use another word, giving, right? It measures the temperature of your heart toward God. 
Stewardship measures the temperature of your heart toward God. A thermometer we're all very familiar with, and it measures the temperature of a given environment. Right, The one that's on the dashboard of my truck whenever I get in it on August 3rd, and it says 107 degrees right, in the blast furnace that we call summer here in Dallas. Right, I've seen it up as high as 110, 112 at times. And then during Snowmageddon last year, I saw it down in the single digits whenever I got in my truck and turned the key, right? And so it just, all, all the thermometer does is read the particular temperature in a given environment at that point in time. And in the same way that a thermometer measures temperature in increments of degrees, how we manage our money and resources, the things at our disposal that God's entrusted to us, is a real-time measurement of the temperature of our heart toward God. It's a real-time measurement of the environment that's currently present in our hearts as we think about the Lord. If our heart is inflamed with a burning love for God, then our resources will follow. But if there's a dim, dwindling coal kind of at the bottom of the fire pit that's about to go out, then our resources reflect that as well. And you say, where is that in the text? Look, at, look with me in verse 5. Look what Paul says about the Macedonians. Because Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he's using the churches in Macedonia as an expression or illustration or inspiration for the church in Corinth to continue what they had started. And in verse 5, Paul says about the Macedonian churches, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. First to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. What does he mean by, the, by to us? They gave of their resources to the collection that Paul was taking for the church in Jerusalem. See, once the Macedonians had given themselves first to the Lord, then in accordance with God's will, they gave themselves to, to Paul and his, 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 his entourage, right? Uh, Titus and other pastors and leaders in the area, right? to the collection they were taking for the distressed saints in Jerusalem. So they had given themselves to God, consecrated themselves to God, set themselves apart for God, said, God, all that we have is yours, and then out of all that we have is yours, they gave to Paul for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, what does the phrase, by the will of God, mean? I believe, based on the context of this passage and elsewhere in Scripture, that what Paul is saying is this, that it's God's desires for His people to excel in the grace of giving. Because he has said already, right? He said, you excel in speech. You excel in these other gifts of knowledge. You excel in the, all these other things that the Corinthians boasted about excelling in, right? Go back and read 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, right? All these gifts that were causing division within the body and they're boasting about who was the most prolific prophet or who was the most, who spoke in tongues most frequently. They're boasting about all these things. And Paul says, you excel in all those things. Now I want you to excel in this too. The grace of giving. In other words, it's God's will for His people to excel in the grace of generosity and giving. And a part of what that means, church, is this. Is that if you and I have an issue whenever pastors talk about giving, then your issue is not with the pastor, but it is with the Lord. Hmm? Uh-oh, Right? is with the Lord. Now, you may have an issue with the way certain pastors talk about giving, right? 
And if you have an issue with the way I talk about giving, we can talk about that, right? But the issue is never pastors talking about giving, this pastor talking about giving, the pastor down the road talking about giving, the mission agency trying to reach the nations talking about giving and stewardship. That's never the issue, right? You may have an issue with the way certain people talk about giving, but the fact that they talk about giving is not the issue. If that's your issue, then your issue is with God. It's with the Lord. Not with that pastor, not with that missionary. It's with God Himself. Because how, listen, how you use your money, how I use my money, says more about how dedicated we are to God, about the temperature in our hearts toward the Lord, than how passionately we sing on Sunday morning, than how fervently we pray on Sunday morning, than how emotionally somebody might preach on Sunday morning. Right? How they use the resources God has entrusted to them says more about the temperature of their heart than how hospitable they are to other people or how frequently they serve in kids' ministry. Okay? It says more than that. And the reason is simple, right? Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which means this, that if you want to know what really inflames your heart, what your heart is really burning for, look at where your money is going. Right? Because giving is a real-time measurement of the temperature in your heart toward God. They gave themselves to the Lord first. And then giving came because their hearts were enraptured with what God, who God was and what He was doing in the world. So, second thing we learn from this passage about giving is this, is that giving is voluntary. It is voluntary. Now, toward the end of verse 3, Paul says that the Macedonians, and he refers back to the churches in Macedonia, he says they gave of their own accord. They gave of their own accord. In other words, the churches of Macedonia gave driven by an internal commitment to and concern for the church in Jerusalem, what God was doing in the world, and the people of God, right? An internal commitment and concern for them rather than an external coercion. They gave of their own accord. It was a voluntary contribution. So nobody was laying it on thick, right? right? Nobody was twisting their arm. Nobody had a gun to their head. No one was making promises either of a financial windfall. If they would just write a check and put it in the mail to this P.O. box, and then you'll receive these prayer claws when they come that are anointed with my sweat that's going to heal all of your diseases and provide funds for all kinds of things that you never thought or possibly imagined, right? That's not what he's, that's not what he's doing here. No one's saying stuff like the key to unlocking your season is sending me money. Right? That's not what Paul says. Rather, the Macedonians gave willingly, freely, and generously of their own accord because they wanted to. They desired to. Right? They wanted to be a part of God's work and caring for the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And in fact, Paul goes on in chapter 9 to continue this discussion with these words. He says explicitly, each one must give, in verse 7 of chapter 9, as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, no external coercion, no one manipulating you in order to give, but what you decided in your heart because God wants you to give how? Cheerfully. Voluntarily. And there's a beautiful illustration of this in 1 Chronicles 29. 
In 1 Chronicles 29, uh, 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 Solomon is preparing to build the temple. David wants to build the temple, but God says, no, you're not going to build it. One of your sons is going to build it. Solomon's going to build the temple. And so David, toward the end of his life, says, listen, Solomon's young. He's inexperienced. He needs some help. And so David, in, 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 in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, he brings funds to the treasury to provide for the construction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. I want to read you the text, starting in verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 29. It says, and David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. We're not building a palace for the king, but building a temple for the Lord. So I provided for the house of my God so far as I was able the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, right? Colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all of that I provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I gave it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver. And then he says this, Who will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Notice the question David doesn't ask in verse 7. He doesn't say, here's all that I've contributed, now who's with me in funding the temple? That's not what he asks. Rather, he gets to the end of that discourse and what he says is who will set themselves apart to the Lord today and make a free will offering from what the Lord has entrusted to them. He goes on in verse, we, the, the text goes on in verse 6. Then the leaders of the Father's houses made their free will offerings, as also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers of the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, listen, because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. So they bring all of these resources, all of this wealth into the temple because they had given freely, right, out of their hearts, which they had first consecrated and offered to the Lord. So they gave self-chosenly of their own accord. Giving is voluntary, church. Right? You shouldn't give because somebody stands up here and puts their thumb on you and tries to beat you into submission. <laughs> Right? Stewardship. Maturing as a steward means you see that it is a voluntary act of your own accord because you've set your heart apart for the Lord and you want to honor Him with what He has entrusted to you in a voluntary, free will capacity. Third, giving is a privilege. Giving is a privilege. Listen, my dog, she's a lot of things, but one of the things she is is a prolific beggar. Okay? I mean, world class here, 
Right? Any time that I go out to the grill to cook some meat on the grill, right? I throw some hamburgers on the grill, I throw some hot dogs on the grill, some sausage on the grill, put some uh, steak on the grill, put some chicken on the grill, ribs, right? fish, salmon, whatever it is. She follows me from the time that she sees me take the package out of the freezer to begin to thaw. She just sits at my feet all day long while it falls out in the sink. And then from the time that I put it on the platter and get it prepared to put on the grill, she follows me inside when I go out to put it on the grill. Back inside, right, when I come to wash off the platter. And then back outside whenever I go to take the platter out there to check on the meat. Then back inside, and then back outside, and then inside and outside. She's always at my feet the entire time the food is on the grill because she can begin to smell the savoriness of the juices as it cooks and drips down there over the, 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 the drain pan. And she's, she can taste it on her, on her tongue. Right? And so she's following me, and then as soon as she sees me, take those tongs or the spatula and take the meat off of the grill and put it onto the tray and begin to walk inside with that tray of meat. She's following me at my heels, and listen, she is an acrobat. She begins to jump as high as she can in the air and spin in circles and then land back down on the ground because she is just amped up about what's on that tray. Right? And so I bring it over to the kitchen counter, and if I've got to cut it up some to serve it, I begin to cut it up, and she's standing there, or sitting there at, at attention, at my feet, her ears pointed up, her big eyes, right? Just looking anxiously and anticipating a piece falling off of the tray. We put it on our plates, and we go sit at the table, and then she goes from person to person to person to person at the table with those big brown eyes soliciting sympathy from any human that would be benevolent enough towards her to give her a piece of the meat that is on our plates. And then as soon as we're done, Right, And we get up to go put our plates in the trash can or in the sink to wash them off. She's following whoever just got up from the table because she knows usually that at the end of the meal, she'll get a couple little pieces in her bowl. And as soon as we get up and are done, she starts jumping again in the kitchen, spinning in circles on her back heels, like walking through right her front legs up, just waiting. And we go drop it in her bowl. And she like inhales it. I don't even think she chews, right? She's, right? And it's all gone, right? She is a prolific world-class beggar. But you know what? My dog begs to get something. But these Macedonians, they were begging to give. That's what Paul says, not what I said. They were begging for the opportunity to participate in this collection look back at the text with me briefly and see what Paul says in verse 4 Paul he says something astonishing he tells the Corinthians that the Macedonians were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints they were begging for the opportunity now the word begging it could also be translated asking but the reason it's translated begging here with that force is because it's a present participle like, what does that mean? Present means it was something they were doing on and on continuously. So they were asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. Kind of like a child, right? And asking and asking and asking and asking. And so Paul says they were begging instead of writing 17 askings there. They were begging for this opportunity, but it's also a participle. And what that means is, participle is a verbal adjective. It's not just describing what they did, but who they were that led them to do what they did. 
So they were the kind of people that desired and longed to participate in God's work in the world. And so they were asking, when can we give? How can we give? Where can we give? Where can we provide for what God's doing around us? And how can we care for the church in Jerusalem? So if you want to use my illustration, right? They were amped, jumping in the kitchen floor, spinning in circles, begging Paul to receive the money they had given because they wanted and longed to give. Now, most people in our community do not look at giving that way. <laughs> they are not spinning in circles on the kitchen floor begging for the opportunity to participate. Right? If that, if, if they, if, in fact, this is, this is why churches all across our nation need initiatives like the one we're doing right now. Right? Because it's not enough to stand up in front of people and say, this is what God's doing, here's how you can be a part. Because people aren't begging longing for the favor. That's the word, the grace, the favor of being a part of this. It's like they're saying to Paul, you're doing us a favor, right? Giving us an opportunity to be a part of this act of grace is a favor to us. But we don't see giving that way. We're not begging to be a part of what God's doing. What would happen if we were? What would happen if we let God's word reframe the way that we think about stewardship, the way that we think about managing what God has entrusted to us, the way that we think about giving. If we let God's Word reshape that, all kinds of resources for kingdom work in our community and beyond would be unleashed if we reframe the way that we thought about money and possessions in accordance with what God's Word teaches. Instead of being angry, listen, I've heard it before here. When I've talked about giving, people get upset. Right? They're because and you can talk about anything other than money. Right? So what if instead of being upset that we're going to talk about giving this week, and guess what? We're going to talk about generosity again next week. Right? A, a, a people who are begging for the opportunity to be a part will say, don't just talk to us about it for two weeks. Tell us about it for four weeks. Because we want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. How much do we need? How can we give? Please give us the opportunity. It's a privilege, church. A voluntary privilege to be a part of what God is doing. Third, it is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. Look at how Paul describes the giving of the Macedonians in verse 3 when he writes, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Now, to give according to your means means something like you would give without making any changes to your lifestyle, any changes to your budget, any changes to your normal mode of operation, right? Your SPO, your standard operating procedures. But to give beyond your means is a sacrificial giving, saying no to some things that you could do to say yes to this thing that the Lord is doing. So what does it mean? What does that look like practically to give according to our means or to give beyond our means? Giving according to our means is, is, is a normal type of way that we would give, right? But giving beyond our means is sacrificial. Giving according to our means doesn't normally change our lifestyle, but giving beyond our means oftentimes cuts into where and what we would eat. Where, what, not where you would wear, what you would wear, where you would live, what you would drive, where you vacation, and on and on and on and on. It doesn't mean that you don't go on vacations. It just might mean that you go on different kinds of vacations because you're giving beyond your means. 
Giving according to your means is usually comfortable, but beyond your means is typically costly. Giving according to your means is very common in what I've called in the past New North Texas Christianity. In North Texas Christianity, many people give according to their means. Right? They look at their budget and they say, what can we give without really cutting into our lifestyle? But giving beyond your means is extremely common in New Testament Christianity. Giving according to your means oftentimes means that you still see the other 90% as yours. But giving beyond your means recognizes the other 90% still belongs to the Lord. And I'm just a steward. I'm just a manager. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29 again in verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. That's what David says. All things belong to you and we haven't given anything to you that you don't already own. Because it all belongs to you. Listen, sacrificial giving. There has never been a church that when it reached the same stage of development that we are in today, that did not have to make sacrifices in order to continue to progress and move forward in their development and advancement in the communities in which God had planted them. They had to give according to their means and beyond their means to move forward. In fact, if you look at the church facilities that dot the landscape of our nation today, right? You would not be surprised, well, maybe you would, to discover, right, that at some point in history, there were regular, average, normal Christians, just like you and I, who said, in order to have a gospel witness and a gospel impact on this community for generations to come, that we're willing to give according to and beyond our means to see what the Lord would do in our community. And they dug deep and they sacrificed. And that's the reason some of those buildings are there today. Still being used by churches to preach the Gospel. Right? To share, shape, and send. There is no church that has reached that marker and said, and, and, and continue to move forward and just said, nah, I think we'll just kind of Continue with the average status quo. But there was a sacrifice in the hearts of those saints to see what the Lord would do in their community, not only in their generation, but in the generations to come. See, church, if the Lord tarries here, and my generation is gone, and your kids' generation is gone, right? what legacy have we left behind us for the generation after theirs? Right? Wouldn't it be great to step back and to be able to say, right? even as Keith led us to pray last week, we did our part in costly sacrifice so that generations from now, there would still be a gospel outpost in this community, a local church that's launching and planting other local churches, reaching neighbors, raising disciples, launching leaders, and that, that legacy would continue not only in our day, but in the day that comes after ours and the generation that comes on our heels. Because listen, I, that we totally, this is not in my notes, we totally underestimate what we're able to accomplish in one year 
or totally overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and totally underestimate what we can accomplish in a hundred. As a church, a hundred years from now, I'm going to be dead and gone with the Lord. Right? And most, if not all of us in this room, will be as well. I know that's a sobering reality. Okay? But what if on the heels of that, there was this legacy that continued in this community? Of neighbors being reached, disciples being raised, leaders being launched, churches being planted. I could go to my grave with a clear conscience in regards to my leadership in this day, if that were the case. Giving is sacrificial. A part of maturing as stewards means that we take the same logic that we apply to, right? Government programs and apply it to the church. Listen, I know we live in an area of some of the most fiscally conservative small government advocates, right, who decry the abuses of welfare and social safety nets. But some of those same people are the people who when we start talking about sacrifice and costly giving, who say, who can we get to pay for this for us? Rather than saying, how can we dig deep and contribute to what God is doing? So, as we think about these principles that are outlined here in 1 Corinthians 8, I've got two things for you as we close as far as application. First one is this. How can you mature in your stewardship? First of all, I want to encourage you to seek your joy through giving. Because joy and giving are connected at the hip, church. At the hip. In other words, you don't have one without the other. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's talking about the Macedonians. He says their severe test of affliction. What's he talking about? The fact that the Macedonians were undergoing very similar situations and circumstances as a church in Jerusalem. They were being socially ostracized, cut off from the channels of wealth of family and vocation, and they were living in extreme poverty. But yet when they heard about the need in the church in Jerusalem, there's something that rose within them to want to give. Paul says, out of their lack, they gave, overflowing with what? Joy. 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 There is a connection all throughout the Bible between joy and giving. Joy and giving. Right? And you see that. You see that's true in life as well. The most joyful people are typically the most generous people. Right? You can observe that in people's lives. And the most generous people are the most joyful people. It goes both directions. And the stingiest of people are typically the people who have the least amount of joy. And the people with the least amount of joy are typically the stingiest among us. Robert Murray McShane said it this way back. He's an old Scottish preacher. He said, oh my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely. Christ is glorious and happy and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Says you want joy in your life, right? Then, then give. Give freely. Give often. Give much. 
because Christ has given all. And look how free and happy He is. In fact, science has actually verified this. J. Kim, in an article for Christianity Today in October of 2021, the most recent edition of it says this, that research, and he points to a Wall Street Journal study that was conducted on individuals who were generous and those who lacked generosity in their lives. He says research is showing that when people give generously, parts of their midbrain are activated, the same parts associated with processing rewards and thus releasing dopamine, the happy chemical. Right? He says humans indeed are hardwired for giving, for generosity. It brings joy. He goes on in that same article to say, we read in Ecclesiastes 5.10 that whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. He says secular science supports this reality. The late writer Mark Fisher, he says, termed the phrase depressive hedonia or hedonism, which he describes as an inability to do anything except pursue pleasure. There is a sense that something is missing, but no appreciation that this mysterious missing enjoyment can only be accessed beyond the pleasure principle. In other words, it can only be found, what you're missing can only be found whenever you move beyond just doing whatever it is that you think is going to bring you satisfaction and pleasure by acquiring and possessing. He says, a love of money and the act of hoarding as much of it for ourselves as possible shackles us to this futile pursuit. Joy, church. You want an illustration from literature? I'll give you one. Right? Look at Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. Right? Whichever version you want to watch. I like the one with the duck. Alright? But look at, his, look at that piece of literature. You've got this miserly old Scrooge who has hoarded things for himself all of his life. And he comes to Christmas and he, he's, he's, he refuses to make donations to charities to support an orphanage. And he's visited one night by the ghost of his former business partner and he's taken by the spirits of past, present, and future into these scenes in which he sees his former fiancée and his past break up with him because she realizes he will never love her more than he loves his money. And then in the present whenever he sees Bob Cratchit's young son, Tiny Tim, okay, and realizes that apart from a change in that family's trajectory, Tim will die and be buried, and that family will grieve him. And into Christmas future where he sees a vision of his own future and of his own death and how no one would gather to mourn his loss, and in fact, some would celebrate the fact that he was gone. And when he comes face to face with those realities and the love of money is exposed in his heart and the shackles that has had him in, that's the whole significance of Marley, his former business partner, showing up in chains. Because he doesn't want Scrooge to end up in the same kind of eternal chains and bondage. And Scrooge wakes up the next morning he makes the donation to the orphanage. He brings food to Cratchit's home. Provides for Tiny Tim's care. And as he begins to do those things, this funny thing that used to not adorn his face begins to happen. His lips crack and he begins to smile as he experiences the joy of giving. 
It's all over the place. It's in the Bible. It's in secular science. It's in our literature, church. You seek joy through giving. But not only do we seek joy through giving, but the last thing is this, you show your love through it as well. You show your love through giving as well. There's a mind-blowing statement in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul tells the church at Corinth that he is not commanding them to give to this collection, but rather, he says, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Listen, Paul had a complicated with the Corinth, relationship with the Corinthians. I told you that already. And because of that complicated relationship, he's not laying down the command of an apostle saying, give, right? You know, Charlton Heston or whatever on the mountain with tablets and fire, right? Give. That's not what he does. Rather, Paul, he's not guilting them into giving either. Paul's inspiring them to give with the example of the way the Macedonians gave abundantly out of their poverty to demonstrate their love for God and for His people and for His work around the world. He's saying, look at how the Macedonians, many of whom are in the same position as the Corinthians, or many of them in the same position as the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, how they showed love for the saints and love for their Savior through their generous participation in the collection. Now may you show just how real your love is as well, Corinthians. That's what he does. But you know what I find fascinating? He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the example of the Macedonians. Because he goes on, to, there's a verse 9, by the way. And listen to what he says in verse 9, for you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Paul says, look at the Macedonians, how out of their extreme poverty and their abundance of joy, they gave and demonstrated their love. But don't just look at the Macedonians, look at Jesus, Paul says to the Corinthians. Look at your Savior, he says, for though he was rich, listen, this is not talking about necessarily, bear with me for a moment, alright? There are some churches who take this text and use it as a proof text for health and wealth, prosperity, teaching and preaching. What Paul is not saying is this, right? That Jesus relinquished himself of all that he had in heaven. And came to this earth and suffered and died and gave himself in our place. That He emptied Himself, as Paul talks about in the book of Philippians in chapter 2. That He made Himself nothing. Took on the form of a servant. Bearing the very likeness of our flesh. And He laid His life down for us. He didn't all, do all that so that we could drive Bentleys and live in certain zip codes. That's not the point of this text. Paul's saying that Jesus, that God in Christ bankrupted heaven. He gave His only Son. So that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus came to earth, lived in our place, died in our place, was raised from the grave so that you and I might know the richness of a relationship with God and be able to trust Him as our Father and provider even in the midst of our severe affliction and test. If the prosperity gospel was right, those folks in Jerusalem and in Macedonia wouldn't have lost their jobs church they wouldn't have been disowned by their families they wouldn't have been cut off from all streams of wealth but god is saying but but, but paul's saying to the corinthians 
Look at Jesus and how He gave. How He sacrificed voluntarily as a privilege to participate in this plan of redemption that He and the Father and the Spirit had set and written down before the foundations of the world. That He gave selflessly. He gave sacrificially for us. And so Paul says, church in Corinth, fulfill your commitment that you made despite the complexities of our relationship to seek your joy and to show your love through your giving. And church, I would say the same thing to us this morning, that if we want to mature as stewards, right? We don't want to stall out in the area of money and possessions. But we want to continue to bear fruit in an abundance of fruit. Ten years, uh, more fruit ten years from now than we do today and more today than we did ten years ago. And we have to seek our joy and show our love through giving. Don't just look at the Macedonians and their example, but look at Jesus in His own self-giving for us. And then voluntarily and sacrificially allow that to inflame your heart with love for God so that the temperature is evident in the ways that you give and give and give. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your own self-giving We thank You for the sending of Your Son who was clothed in flesh in the likeness of man and experienced everything this world has to offer other than sin. And yet our sin was laid on Him at the cross. My sin fell on Him. And as we see the self-giving generosity and grace of Jesus may it unlock the shackles of our hearts that are bound to money and possessions. So that our hearts will be inflamed with love for You and not love for things and status and security in this world and significance among our peers but inflamed with love for You and for what You're doing in the world. And that out of us first giving ourselves to You, that we might voluntarily and sacrificially participate in the privilege of giving as mature stewards. I pray that You'd make us the happiest people on the planet through our giving and of the world would see our love through what we give as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.